from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zaro. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zaro, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and your host for today's show on activism. You know, in an election, somebody always wins, somebody always loses. But it seems like in this particular election, we've wound up with a level of fear, anger, sorrow that I don't ever recall experiencing at this scale and intensity. And I was a teenager during the arms race. We were perpetually terrified. Um, Mixed together the unleashed misogyny, racism, and bigotry with the very real threat that exists to women's reproductive rights, paid family and medical leave policies. And it's easy to see why advocates for women at work are deeply concerned. So today, we're going to talk about how can we protect what matters most to us and create change even when it seems impossible. Possible. Joining us to explore this are two forces of nature, Jessica Benick and Josh Levs, authors, journalists, and activists, and two of my favorite former guests, um, are going to be joining us today. You may recall Jessica is the author of the hilarious and empowering Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. And Josh is the author of All In, How Our Workforce Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. I'm eager to see how they're making sense out of everything that's happening around us. And I invite you to join in our conversation. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell us what's worrying you and the people in your immediate world. And what are you doing to make it better? What are the examples of activism around you that you could share with us to inspire us? So that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So as I've mentioned, Jessica Bennett is an essential voice in the discussion of sexism and inequality in the workplace. She earned her reputation through her awesome work at Newsweek, Tumblr, and Time. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times and a contributing editor for LeanIn.org. And her book, The Feminist Fight Club, is a must-have for every young woman at work and us older ones, too. And Josh Levs, as I mentioned, is the author of All In. He examines the gender inequalities and expectations inherent in our work culture and helps us see how both men and women will benefit if we make more gender-equal policies. Um, so it's no wonder that the Financial Times named Josh one of the top 10 male feminists. He's UN Women named him global champion of gender equity. So across the board, I feel very lucky to say, welcome, Jessica. Welcome, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to be here. I think this, you know what? I think this program is going to be real cathartic today. It's good for you, too. It's good. We'll process this together. Jessica, how are you? I am good. Thank you for having me. Uh, We're thrilled to have you back here. So I want to start off post-election. What are you each seeing? Jessica, what are you seeing in your world with your friends and your colleagues? I'm seeing a lot of stages of grief. You know, it truly, I think that people were in shock the first couple of days. People, of course, on Hillary Clinton's side, they were in shock. They couldn't believe it. Then there was a very intense sadness you know, never before during a presidential election or any election for that matter, have I seen so much emotion pouring out of colleagues and friends. But I think that slowly but surely we've reached a stage of anger and of action. And so what I'm beginning to see is a lot of people who are really upset, many of whom who had contributed money and time and volunteered for Hillary Clinton. I have some friends who quit their jobs to go and work for her. They're suddenly saying, okay, we need to band together, we need to act, and we need to figure out exactly what is going to be most effective. How about you, Josh? Are you seeing and feeling the same kind of thing? Sure, yeah. I mean, and Jessica also just described me. (laughs) Um, It's important for me to say that, believe it or not, there are many, many, many men, there are millions of men in this country who really want equality and who were expecting Clinton to win and wanted her to win and just saw the incredibly stark difference between these two candidates. And, you know, I, some people process it, process it as a form of death when, when you know, the election happened. I see it as a form of trauma that a lot of people are experiencing, and those two things are, are very, very similar. And, you know, what I said on, on Facebook the next day is that trauma is like getting clobbered with a crowbar. And you know, your body is, is shaking at first, and you're stunned. But then that feeling wears off, and you stand up, and you walk forward. And for me, that's what it's all about right now. I am even more invigorated to launch even bigger campaigns for true 
gender equality in, in 2017. So it's interesting. I also felt, you know, because it's been no secret how I was voting. I also felt that sadness and that anger. But I find it really interesting that um, the way you're each articulating, you know, Jessica, you're talking about the cycle that we go through of taking our our grief and then getting angry and mobilizing. And Josh, you describe it as trauma, which I want to come back to in a minute. Um, Jessica, for you, was writing your New York Times piece part of processing the grief and moving into anger and action? I think so. You know, I typically process these things through writing. And so I did certainly have this whole process of trying to figure out what I was really trying to say. And there was so much I wanted to say. And and how could I actually frame that and narrow that into a way that made sense for readers? And I was really sad, but I wanted to end on an empowering note. So certainly the, the angle I took was looking at, you know, why it matters to see women in power and looking at all of the different studies that show that young women and young men, for that matter, it really changes hearts and minds to see a woman leading. And so for all of these young women who have you know, been polled in surveys and said that watching Hillary Clinton up there has actually made them want to attain to leadership positions or positions in politics. You know, what now? What happens to them now? And we continually tell young women that they can achieve at the highest levels. And in fact, you saw that in Hillary Clinton's acceptance speech. She said she wanted young little girls to remember that they could achieve. And then Obama said it repeatedly in his (laughs) speech after. And yet, At the same time, we're telling them they can achieve anything except not president because we've never seen one. Right. And thus, can you give us the title of the article for the people who'd like to Google it? Yes. What was the title of the article? Girls can be anything, just not president. Exactly. And it was in the New York Times last week. And I found it, um, it was almost like a eulogy for the campaign. And it also gave us something to, like you said, a certain amount of hope at the end of it about how we march forward. Josh, though, when you talk about this, um, it's so what's part of what's so resonant is when you describe trauma, it's like you're hurt by this. Like there was something blunt and awful that happened. Can you give us more language to understand it and expect, especially from the perspective of a man? Okay, sure. So, you know, you were saying in your intro, uh, you know, quite accurately for you, and I'm sure a lot of people that you don't remember ever feeling this way after an election, even though. You were a teenager when there was an arms race going on, right? Okay, so, so let's look at why that is. The reason for that is that now there was real hope for a whole new stage in the battle for equality. You know, because the, the fight for equality has actually been on a heck of a roll. As American yes. go, we usually trade off between the left and the right. But what we've seen, especially over the last eight years, the first black president, and then in 2012, when, when Mitt Romney lost, I remember the Republican analysts were saying, wow, this is just not the 1950s America anymore that he was going for. And same-sex marriage has passed. And we have a president talking about trans rights. And now there's a woman who was in the lead throughout the race. So the reason that the, that the emotional core was so elevated here is that unlike 20 years ago when it would have seemed silly to imagine many people you know a woman might actually win here there was the genuine hope and the genuine popular vote victory so it's that that crashing down so when you say where do the emotions come from and the trauma it is this very very high mountain of hope that we had been climbing mm-hmm. and now a lot of us feel like we've been kicked off the mountain and we're, we're always falling all the way down and so i think i think that is where and i'll tell you something as a man i have having lots of conversations with fellow men and i do have friends on, on both sides and we can talk about that but i have many 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 more male friends who very much wanted hillary clinton and they do feel the same way it's that that feeling of hope for real genuine equality for our daughters and for our sons and for ourselves. How much of um, and, and how much of the anguish that we're feeling isn't just what we lost by not having a woman elected to the White House, but by what we lost by seeing the kind of discourse that's emerging all over the country, the misogyny. Yeah. The anti-Semitism, um, the hate speech. Like for me, that's equally painful and deeply frightening. Yeah. I mean, people would not have, 
have the same, you know, concerns if it were Jeb Bush, for instance. That is what a lot of people expected, that this would be a Jeb Bush versus Clinton race. And, and you know, while I'm, I'm sure, you know, people would have been very, have very strong feelings about it, there would not have been those fears. And so you're exactly right. What happened here instead is that the, the other candidate, it's not even right and left anymore, a Democrat and Republican. It was really a coalition of Americans across the spectrum that voted Clinton and another coalition that, that voted Trump. And to see how that other campaign became not just um, an alternative, but very much organized and directed against the very idea of equality. That's, that's something that a lot of us saw in it and something that we have to come to understand in order to tackle. And this is where we get into the activism idea. You know, first we have to wrap our minds around what we saw. But yes, exactly. Seeing, seeing the extreme pointedness of the other side, the incredibly offensive language, the incredibly offensive references to people of all kinds of groups, um, it, it's something that we all have to grapple with. And what we saw was a direct reaction against that battle for equality. So, Jessica, when you were talking before about the cycle that you're moving through, that you see your friends moving through, of, you know, dealing with the blow, the grief, moving into anger and activism, is what percentage of the activism is about the is about the loss of Hillary as president and a woman as president, and how much of it is about this climate and culture that's evolving? I think it goes hand in hand. I also think that one of these stages of grief has been for those of us in the media to really stop and think for a moment how wrong we got it. Because there's certainly, you know, the the right has criticized the liberal media, the liberal elite media for so long. And yet here we are. We really screwed up. (laughs) The media projected everything incorrectly. And most of us in it, I think, were almost smug about the fact that we really did believe she was going to win. And so for me, one of these stages, and I think, I don't know if you would call it activism, but something that I've been trying to focus on is kind of shutting up and listening because I think that I didn't listen enough. I think that it's very easy to be in this kind of echo chamber of educated New York City liberals and not hear what the rest of the country was telling us, which was that they were really frustrated and they saw something in this man. So I think that there is certainly a kind of reckoning going on in a lot of different media media organizations, figuring out just how they misconstrued and how they miscalculated and what they do going forward. So I think that's the moment. I also think that, you know, there was a funny sketch on SNL last weekend. Dave Chappelle was on for the first time in years and years and years. And they did this sketch that was supposed to be people in Brooklyn watching the election. And they were watching the returns come in. And it was all of these liberal white people saying, oh, my God, like, well, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Oh, my God. And then Chappelle and his fellow person of color friend who were like, where have you all been living? <laughs> You've been living under a rock. Like, we knew this. Like, welcome to America. Racism exists here. Like, we can't believe that you're so shocked by this. So I do think that there is a lot of discussion happening around how did liberal progressive white people miss this and people of color being disappointed, but also not being super surprised about it. So I think that in addition to activism, there's a lot of listening happening and kind of a referendum, I think, on just how we miss to that end, I'm talking with Jessica Bennett and Josh Labs, authors, journalists, activists, and people who do want to learn about what you're feeling out there. So if you want to give us a call, we would love to hear from you at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So as you're talking about, you know, recognizing that it is a racist world, um, I'm coming back to something that Josh said before, you know, through the eight years of Obama being the president, we got to see civil rights take giant steps forward. And we saw it both in public policy. We saw it in the media. We saw it in our own communities. Like we were all thinking that finally society is getting on board and really growing. And so part of I wonder if part of what we missed was that we so wanted to believe that it was different. And part of this is about waking up to the fact that it's not. 
It's not where we thought it was. Yeah. I mean, you know, looking at what Jessica was just saying is, is spot on. The, the number one thing that we have to do, that we all have to do right now, is, is learn the real picture. And so it's been interesting to me to see some of the think pieces out there in which I understand why this is happening, um, but it's not the right take. Some people are saying, you know what, forget that, <laughs> or, or using harsher language than forget. They're saying, <laughs> I, I don't want to come to understand the quote-unquote white working class. I don't want to come to understand racism. I don't want, you know, and so I think what's happening there, that kind of rejection, is makes sense on an emotional level, but you cannot ever, and this is something for, you know, for us to make clear today, you can't be an activist unless you start with the facts. You have to always. The number one thing in fighting for change is to have accuracy on your side. So we all have to understand what happened here. And so I've been doing the same thing. You know, it's, it, I always thought it would be very, very close. I didn't think anyone would walk away with it. So I, I saw you know, a lot of what was happening here. Um, but I was still surprised by some things. I was surprised particularly, really the one thing that surprised me was Pennsylvania. You know, I really thought that, that that one was different. So I've actually gotten regional about this. I've asked people who live in those areas. I've said, you know, what I missed about this portion of the country. Explain to me. And so I've, I've seen really interesting things, you know, like this wonderful line. I forget who wrote it. I'll tweet out her name afterwards. But she said, <laughs> Trump's support, that, that the media takes Trump literally but not seriously. And his supporters take him seriously but not literally. Wow. Okay, wait. Time out on that one. Like, Say that again. Yes, it was so brilliant. The media takes Trump literally, but not seriously. And his supporters take him seriously, but not literally. When I read that, it's like Eureka. Here's what that mm-hmm. means, okay? They don't care if he gets his facts wrong about Syria or what's happening in Ukraine. They do care that he comes across as a person who is not going to give in to liberal PC culture. They take him seriously as a legitimate possible leader. And the theory was, when she wrote this, that the media, meanwhile, takes him literally. I mean, he gets all his facts wrong. Like, he's just right. constantly saying things that are lies. But does not take him seriously as in, did not take him seriously as in this man might actually be the president of the United States. And I think that distinction right there, seeing what is it that his supporters really did like about him, setting aside race and, and these other divisions. What was it that people actually liked about him? We have to do everything we can to wrap our minds around the reality going forward. So, Jessica, I was a fan of yours before the election. I was reading your articles, um, and I didn't find your reporting to be, um, and maybe it's because I come from the same world, but I was always inspired by it, educated by it, enlightened. When you look at how you listened, how you reported, and how you made sense of information, um, I appreciate the way that kind of generally you're taking responsibility but where would it? Where would you do things differently if you had to do it over again? That's a good question. I think that we have to get outside of our comfort zones and talk to more people. You know, it is very typical of New York City media entities that are centered here to rely on that as our base. Mm-hmm. You know, especially now in an age I'm a freelance writer. So, do I have a budget? for somebody to send me to Wisconsin to speak to people there? Probably not. So I'm going to work the phones. I'm probably also going to get connected to a lot of people in my network. And I don't think that's okay anymore. That's not an excuse. We need to be expanding outside of our comfort zones. We need to be talking to other people. I also think there's this sense that, you know, we thought we knew that nobody was supporting Trump, (laughs) at least in our circles. And yet people were. So who are those people? Why do they not feel comfortable talking about it then? Do they feel comfortable talking about it now? You know, who is the Ivanka voter? Who are these 53% of white women who voted for Trump? And how do they reconcile his treatment and his discussion and the rhetoric around women with voting for this man? I think that we need to try to understand that. And so I do think that there is a responsibility on us as media to do better. It's also a really scary time. What is he going to do in terms of freedom of press? How is he going to limit access? And so all of these things are swirling around, and I don't know that I have the answers except to say that we have to do better. It sounds like there's a complicated path to navigate between that may be part of what's so hard in general about informed citizenship, but I think particularly for both of you as journalists, is how do you really listen 
and hear both sides and Josh, like you said, gather the facts and at the same time um, serve as a voice and an advocate when you see things that are dangerous and disconcerting. I also think that, you know, investigative research and investigative reporting, you see less and less of these days. And for a long time, we were seeing a lot of coverage of Trump, but I think the media wasn't taking him particularly seriously, literally, but not seriously, as Josh said. And so we weren't digging into some of these larger issues. You know, it was only in the last few months that all of this new stuff came forward, him on video making those gruesome remarks. And then you saw the New York Times do a lot of really great investigative reporting digging into this. But was it too late? I don't know. You know, why were we not going harder from the start, from the beginning? And so or is it about sorry, or is it about who reads The New York Times? I mean, I think that's probably part of it, too. Who cares what they have to say or who takes it (laughs) seriously? You know, let me just talk to since Jessica was talking geography. I I just want listeners to know I don't live in New York or, or, you know, I, I live in Atlanta. And this is so textured when you look at what's happening in America. I mean, she's right. We have to get out of our our comfort zones and hear people. You know, if you look in my immediate world, Clinton was doing so well in the polls that even Georgia was a toss-up state, which is unheard of. And even still, they didn't even call Georgia very early in the night. So, you know, one could even say, no matter where you are, this kind of thing can happen. Um, It is true that a lot of us aren't hearing each other. And another piece of this, along with, you know, the reckoning that we need about the role of media and all this, also is understanding the the disproportional power that some voters have because of the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. So it really is hearing each other but it's also taking a real look at our democracy and recognizing that if you are a kind of person who, let's say because you're openly gay or because of your racial background or for whatever reason, you're more comfortable living in a city where there are lots of people, you move to a place that's blue and your vote is worth less. So right. we actually have to take a look at, at the entire system and decide, okay, as we move forward, what needs to change to make sure that the cause of equality survives? And even, you know, this goes as granular as to how you get your news. So the majority of Americans now say that they get their news from Facebook. And there's this big debate happening now about the way that Facebook aggregates its feeds. So you're frequently seeing news that you agree with because Facebook realizes what is on your side, and then they feed you more of that information. Well, probably a lot of the news you're also receiving is fake. And so when we're making decisions about how we get our news, like going back to I've been reading the New York Times since I was nine years old, and it was put on my desk every day in school. Do you know what I mean? Like some people had the Bible. I had the New York Times. And <laughs> and I've always trusted it as the paper of record, not to mention evocative of home because I grew up in New York. Um, but I've also learned that the news looks different through other newspapers. Um, You can line up the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times on a given day, and then I'm also still deferring to traditional print news, even if it's online. And Jessica, you're saying most of the country is getting their news via Facebook? Yep. They're getting it via news sources in their news feed on Facebook. But the reality is that those are all being channeled to them because Facebook knows that those are the kinds of articles they like to read. So there's not a diversity of opinion happening in your Facebook feed. And if that's where the majority of people go- are going, then of course we don't realize that there's another side to this. <laughs> We're not getting it. And, you know, there's this big debate happening about does Facebook bear some responsibility right. in the way that we got this news in the election? Because so much of it is not true. You know, the way, in the same way that Donald Trump used lies or things that are not truth, and we fact-check them on it, but nobody seems to really care, that's what's happening in your feed as well. All of this fake news is coming through, and nobody's saying this is false. And so it sounds like we've got two kind of enormous societal challenges, which is how do we, as individuals, um, A, make it our responsibility to get real news, understand what it is we're consuming, and seek it out? And in turn, then, what are the organizations or operations that are feeding us news, and are they being transparent and responsible? Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that, you know, basically zero newspapers anywhere endorse Donald Trump, even conservative newspapers. You know, so it isn't even just so much about, like, which newspaper are you reading or where are you getting it from. It is that we we have our own echo chambers. That's absolutely the case. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine uh, put this to the test by setting up a 
fake uh, Facebook account that just had a few racist things on it. That's all that, that, that he put there, just some racist stuff. And um, in no time, he started getting all these messages and ads and other things from uh, Trump supporters and horrible things about Hillary Clinton. He never mentioned the president. He, he just wanted to see what would happen. So it, it became very clear that you really can start to feel that you are part of this this community. And, you know, Trump had seven times as many Twitter bots as Clinton did. So he was always leaving the, the Twitter hashtags. And people <laughs> right. who love that were seeing, oh, wow, you know, we're part of this huge community. And now it turns out that a few teenagers in Macedonia, I believe, were making all this money because they created fake pro-Trump, anti-Hillary uh, articles that got tons and tons of clicks. I mean, it, it's it's us setting ourselves up to be taken advantage of. And so it's really about, um, yes, looking at the media, um, and also just looking at what kind of society we are. Do we care about the facts? Do our people being educated in a way that they care about the facts? And I think, you know, the, the way to move forward is to be bigger and more cultural than that, to make clear across the culture that ultimately the cause of equality is good for us all, and that racism and sexism and Islamophobia and all these other things are bad for us all. I think boiling it down to the simplest message possible is going to be our, our best way forward. Without a doubt. And Jessica, with the little bit of time that we have left, where are you putting your energies next? I'm going to Mexico on vacation. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> um, no, I um, I mean, that is true. I am going to Mexico on vacation. And then I, I need to come back and I need to kind of regroup. Like, what's next? You know, I wrote this book. Um, there are a lot of people who are very inspired by it. There are a lot of young women in particular who are forming their own feminist fight clubs to get together and to talk about these issues. But I'm not exactly sure what's next, and I need to figure that out. And it's interesting because, you know, I wrote this book specifically targeted at a certain generation, millennials and younger, and the idea was we face a subtler form of sexism. It is harder to identify, it is harder to call out, but it is still very real. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the entirety of this book proving that through data and social science research and then providing ways to overcome it. Well, suddenly, overnight, sexism is no longer subtle like right. this is the most overt sexism i've ever experienced in my lifetime and so how do you combat that and does it need to be more aggressive like this is not calling out somebody in your workplace who continually interrupts you which is a problem as well but this is somebody saying that it is okay to grab women by the pussy and so i think that Part of my job is to regroup and figure out how I best cover these issues continuously and for what outlet I do that. Well, Jessica, first of all, thank you for everything you've done to date. I hope you have a great vacation in Mexico. Wear your sunblock and come back riled up. And we are eager to see what you do on the other side. And in particular, thanks for being here for Women at Work. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And after we take a short break, I'll be back to talk more with Josh about how we make change happen. If you want to give us a call, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm Laura Zarrow here with Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and back for the second half of today's show on activism. Um, we're processing our reactions to the election, what we've learned about the importance of listening to each other, and talking about how we can take our personal reactions and feelings and get political with them. Um, in the first half hour, we were joined by Jessica Bennett and Josh Levs, and I'm delighted to say that Josh is back for our second half hour. So, Josh, thanks for yeah. hanging in there with us. Oh, I'm happy to. Let's talk. Um, so, Josh, one of the ways we first met you was through your book, All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. And this book really grew out of a personal experience that you confronted. Can you tell us the story just quickly? Because I then want to move into talking about how you went from having this experience to becoming an activist. Sure, absolutely. So I was covering all sorts of things at CNN, on the air and online, and um, I also started covering fatherhood. And then when my wife was pregnant with our third child, we realized that I would be needed at home to do some caregiving after the birth. 
Uh, but CNN's policy made no sense. It was such that anybody could get 10 paid weeks except a guy who had a baby in old-fashioned way, biologically. So anybody <laughs> else could get it. So I had tried to get the policy fixed really quietly internally. They wouldn't do it. And then my daughter was born in an emergency, and they still wouldn't give me the, the weeks. And so I ended up launching a legal battle, and that got a lot of attention. And the company revolutionized its policy. And I wrote a book called All In. And now, I, <laughs> and I, a couple years later, I left the company, and I, I, I work full-time now for, for gender equality, and I work with businesses to, to build policies that make sense. So I want to dive into a few of these moments. And and if you don't mind, talk about how did you feel and who did you talk to and how did you start to get momentum? So when you first got this kind of appalling news that everybody else could be home with their baby, but not you, because you were a man married to a woman who was going to actually give birth. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I see why it's, it's apropos right now, too, because, you know, the fact is I was facing like a, a, we were facing a really, really horrible situation for our family. Um, and, you know, and, and instead of giving up, I, I did. I became an activist. So basically what happened there was that I had a choice to make. You know, I could either just accept it or I could stand up and say, this is wrong. This policy should not exist. I've tried everything internally and this has to change. And so. I made a choice, you know, and I, I took a risk. I, I made a choice to be public about this and to file my legal claim. And I did it believing that in this country, if you stand up for what's right, there are people who will support you. And I did it having covered these issues. So I really understood them. So I knew how to communicate about them. So these were the ingredients, having the facts, being a communicator. And being um, in this situation in which I could fight to make a difference and having this belief in this country that it's worth doing. So all those things came together, and I, um, I did. I, I took those steps. So I want to back up to something. Now, you talked yeah. about, you know, you're willing to take that risk. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who see things that they see as in, in, injustices, uh, overt crimes, um, or things that are just unacceptable among civilized, decent humans. And... It's frightening to stand up to that. It's frightening to stand up to the bully. It's frightening to oppose the policy, particularly when they pay the bills and it's your employer. Where was fear for you in this and what did you do with it? Um, you know, there's this expression, fools walk where angels fear to tread. It's mm-hmm. like I, I made the choice to be ignorant about fear. I made the choice <laughs> to ignore it. You know, I mean, as we can tell, in this country, we're, I guess, all selectively ignorant in some way, some more than others. <laughs> and and I made the choice just not to think about it. You know, it's like the attorney I had. He said, he said, you know, technically they're not allowed to fire you for doing this, but they could. It happens all the time. And I said, I know. And, you know, we, we do. We depend on my income, and we would have had to figure something out if I had been fired for it. But it was, for me... It, it gets back to who do I want to be as a person? And that's kind of what I had to ask myself. You know, when I was graduating from college, I set out a goal for myself that that I, wasn't, I was going to be someone who stood up for what was right and, and didn't. I remember thinking, even when I was 22 out of college, I said, I'm not going to let fears about mortgage and health insurance prevent me from doing the things I believe in. And so I realized that this was an opportunity for me to prove to myself that I was who I said I'd be. So I, you know, but I also just kind of like closed my eyes and shut my ears from fear. <laughs> I'm just taking this step anyway, and I'm going to believe that there will be solid ground underneath me. So as you embarked on this process, where did you find support and where did you find opposition? Well, that's the beauty of this, and that's also why this election has been so shocking. Because when I announced that I was taking on this policy, um, the support that came in from across the spectrum was incredible. You know, from all these women's groups and men's groups and mom blogs and dad blogs and conservatives and liberals, people all over the spectrum saying, you know, clearly that kind of thing makes no sense. And it was the women's groups that were especially um, just so interesting to me, you know, when I was hearing from Cheryl Sandberg's group and, and Maria Shriver's. It, I, I became fascinated trying to understand why my family's situation was so interesting to so many people. And that's when I came to understand that it is a reflection of this madman culture that we're still battling. That right. everything was designed around women staying home and men staying at work. And we're so far from where we should be. And so for a lot of people, my case became a symbol of how to bring about that change. I also think it, you became a really important example of... Um, why this matters to men and why men's voices are important in the bigger conversation. Yeah. You emerged at a time when there weren't a lot of people like you. 
Well, right. I mean, it's been interesting that to see the extent to which, you know, my, my book and, and my events and stuff have turned, made me this unicorn. People are so fascinated. <laughs> We're like, oh, who is this guy? Um, but then when they hear my story, they, they share their stories. And very often they have very similar stories about how they struggled at home as well. And part of what is so <laughs> challenging for me, you know, my, my challenge is, has just gotten a lot harder because of this election, because a lot of what I'm able to do is, is travel around, and it's in the book and the articles, and everything I do is I, I tell the facts about dads, that mm-hmm. virtually all dads you know, care for our children every major category at least several days a week, that working fathers spend an average of three hours a day with their kids, all these things that violate the stereotype. And now it's harder for me to make that argument that you know, dads really are becoming much more equal in, in the way that we handle our lives at home, because people see this election as kind of a litmus test against equality from from a lot of women and from a lot of men. So it's gotten harder, but that doesn't mean I stop. It means I fight back harder. You know, I've been in this situation before where I see a tough task in front of me, and I know that there are a lot of people like you and Jessica and so many others who who want the same things, and the majority of Americans now who want the same things, that it's just worth the fight. That's all. It's just worth it. So take a few steps back. For those of us who um, are not plugged in as journalists, we don't work at CNN, um, and you know, we want to figure out how can I start to mobilize? How can I start to create change? Now, right. granted, you have the pen in your in your hand, you know, the proverbial yeah. pen. But right. really, quite specifically, how did you go from this is my family's issue with my employer mm-hmm. to sharing information to the point that these groups could get on board and support you? What were right. the steps along the way? Yes, and this is what we all need to know right now, okay? This is what you and Jessica and I were talking about. Number one has to be a genuine, complete, and thorough understanding of the landscape. So, you know, I was, I had been covering fatherhood issues. That's part of what was so, you know, ridiculous about them turning me down for that leave. Everything, if anyone analyzed me, everyone would have said, hey, this is a guy who will challenge the policy. Right, like, don't be, like, why be silly? This isn't the one you do this with. Right. You don't, you don't mess with this guy because he knows what he's talking about, right? So, so number one in, in turning from, you know, just a person to an activist is always accept that you don't know everything, that you need to learn. And when I went off on this, doing this book, I didn't know what the answer would be. I didn't know I've become a huge advocate of paid family leave because I needed the facts first. I don't want things that will hurt businesses. I don't want things that will hurt small businesses. So I had to go and find with a truly open mind. So number one is the facts. And number two is that in your movement, you have to have very clear messaging and communication. And that ultimately, you know, I'm not the only person ever to have challenged a policy at the workplace, but I am the only guy who has done this. And that's just because I just so happen to also be, in addition to a journalist, a communicator. Mm -hmm. So when I said to my company, anyone gets 10 paid weeks except the biological father, the majority of people didn't even know that because they had never put two and two together and looked at all these different policies that there were and saw that that was the net result. So having very clear messaging and very clear communication, once you do those two things, you've got the knowledge and you've got the clear messaging, and the most important thing, number three, is that you bring solutions to the table. Always bring your solutions, focus on your solutions, talk about them all the time. When you put those three things together, you become an activist, and your activism can bring about real change. So you're listing three things that are really critical, and I can see it um, compared to the kind of emotional passionate public protests that are going on around us that, you know, whether it was I was engaging in them during the arms race in high school or the things that we're concerned about now, it's that it's one thing to wail, to scream and cry and to say we're scared and we're angry, but nobody can do anything with that if we don't get specific. Exactly. So, Look, all of the feelings that people are, are having right now, that so many of us are having right now, you know, it's, I, I, it's so overwhelming what's happened here that I feel like it's an earthquake and, and we're covered in rubble. But, <laughs> but we are helping each other get out from under the rubble. And what happens after an earthquake when there's rubble is that you build something new. And it's hard and it sucks and you didn't see it coming and you didn't want to have to do this. But you build something new. So 
what we all need to do now is take these energies that we're feeling and not fixate on every news story. You know, stop looking at Facebook all the time. Stop listening to <laughs> Donald Trump has appointed so-and-so to do blah, blah, blah. Stop fixating on that stuff and start looking at the big picture to make sure we move culture forward. So, you know, working together, all of us, to build real gender equality. For me, I'm just turning my efforts into overdrive now. And I'm saying, you know, all the energy that I'm feeling right now, all the anger, all the frustration, I'm going to take all of that energy and I'm going to channel it into an even bigger, even huger campaign in 2017 for true gender equality than I had previously planned to. You know, the challenge got bigger, so we'll have to get bigger too. So first of all, let me know how I can support you along the way. Second of all, do. I mean, this show is one of the absolute best shows in all of broadcasting to to talk about these things. You you really really get it. Thank and, you. You know, whatever we do, you'll be you'll be speaking at it. I'm sure because <laughs> um, I care about it deeply. And that brings me to my next question, which is that um, we talk a lot about policies, regulations, practices in business as well as in government. But you're talking about the importance of culture. Mm. Talk to me about yeah. why that's where your energy is going. Because the government doesn't control it. You know, think back to the 1960s, right? Like, I'm, you know, if you think 60s, sure, you can think, you can think what, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I guess. You know, you can think, but you can think of a president, but you can also think of Woodstock and the Beatles. Culture is not, in our society, culture is not controlled by the government. We, the people, control our culture. And, you know, part of this, the, the hope that I have comes from seeing how young people voted in this election. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it really was a very clear choice between an extremely capable and, of course, flawed, because she's human, you know, woman, and a horrifying man. And so, <laughs> and I have every right, those who disagree are listening, I have every right to feel that way. Mm -hmm. You have a right to feel the way that you do. And I respect that right. And I respect that Donald Trump won. So people who are saying, you know, electoral college, blah, 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 no. No, we would have a bloody civil war. You don't change the, the electoral college. Just because you don't like rules. the outcome, right? They followed it, right. So, but you know what? The, the government does not control our culture. And when we keep spreading the solution and the message and standing up everywhere that we see bigotry and prejudice, the, the government cannot turn that backward. So to all those of us who are standing up and saying, you know, Muslim people are not inherently evil. It's just like basic facts, you know. Immigrants did not steal your jobs. Modern technology revolutionized the economy right. and made a lot of those jobs, unfortunately, less relevant. You know, getting the facts out there, we control that. No one so far, as long as we maintain our, our First Amendment rights in this country, which we also have to fight for, as long as we have that, no government, elected official, appointed, secret official, whatever, you know, given some kind of fight, the court ruling, whatever happens, we still, at least at this moment, control our culture. And that's something where we can all stand together. So you're bringing up two critically important points, which is what do we see and feel and hold dear in the way we behave in our world on a day-to-day -day basis and in how we, we relate to each other and the power of our First Amendment rights? It comes back to something you were talking about before, which is understanding what those rights are and where and where you're not protected so that if you want to use your voice to be an advocate for change, you can do so in a way where your voice can be sustained. You know what? That's a really good point. I always forget to point that out. And yeah, you're good at catching these things that, that when I um, spoke out <laughs> while I was still an employee of CNN, I actually spoke to the American Bar Association last week, as you know, because we emailed that day. Yes. And yeah, and um and, you know, one of the people that I was out there with said it's, it's almost unheard of for someone to continue working at their place after they, they file a, a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, and I remained an employee at CNN for two years after I not only filed that charge, but also went public. And what I've learned is that people don't know that they have the right to do that. People, you know, unfortunately, we don't really learn our rights and workers don't learn their rights. And a lot of workers don't realize they have any rights. You know, I, I've had lawyers asking me these kinds of things. Or people say, well, I'm in a, a, a you know, a at-will work state. Do I have rights? Yes, every American has certain rights under Title VII. So learning your rights and using them, using them in, in positive ways for activism is actually, you know, one of, the, one of the bulwarks of what makes America truly great mm -hmm. and what will continue to, to make us even greater. 
and you know, as as horrified as you may feel from this election, or vindicated if you're a Trump supporter, um, the fact is we've got big, big problems on our hands, and we have massive division, and we will all deal with this best if we all come together to stand up for shared values, and equality has got to be one of them. Without a doubt. So the passionate and unbelievably perceptive person that I'm talking with is Josh Labs, and he's the author of All In, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. Um, if you want to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So Josh, as you talk about culture, one of the things that Um, I see in the work that you're doing is that beyond your advocacy for parental leave and the right for dads to have paid leave to be home and the importance of family leave for the whole family, you also are really putting forward new models of what manhood can look like. Yeah, and and that is also why I am just completely shocked and horrified by this election because statistically, Donald Trump is unlike... 99% of fathers today. He is not a symbol of modern America. He just statistically is not. So what we're looking at is huge numbers of men who voted for a man who is very much unlike them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they did not vote for um, someone who's living a life like them. You know, most of these guys have wives who are also working. Most of them are hands-on fathers. He has said and proudly that he doesn't raise his children. He didn't bathe and clothe them. He doesn't change diapers. Right. <laughs> he only provides the money. This is this is almost, statistically almost unheard of today. And I had a piece about that in HuffPost recently. And yet, so, so yes, so you know, a lot of what I'm doing is trying to shine a light on modern manliness being about being caring and loving and holding our, our children. I actually have a book that I'm going to be putting out that has pictures of President Obama playing with babies, just because that's what I want my kids to see. I want children of America to see a, a president and a man um, being, being tender. Being, being tender loved, and being loving. Caring. Yeah. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we need to talk about. And these are the, the images that we need to make sure still predominate, not the, the Donald Trump sexist way of being a man. And as you've worked with men on this, because part of what you're doing is expanding everyone's notion of what men can be, just like Jessica's helping expand everyone's notion of what women can be. That's right. right. When you're out there doing this, um, where are you finding more um, resistance and more gratitude? Um, Mm. Is it in changing women's perception of men or in changing men's perceptions of themselves? You know what's amazing is that it's, it's equal parts both. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I just spoke at the three percent conference for for women in advertising, and uh, you know, this happens everywhere I speak. I mean, there, there are women who come up to me and say, "I feel bad. I never thought about this before. It never occurred to me that men have less opportunity to be caregivers uh, across this country." And I showed, you know, we haven't mentioned this this hour, but my book is filled with stories of men who mm-hmm. took time off they were allowed to take um, to be caregivers, just based on federal law, to care for new babies or sick parents or whatever, and they were fired or demoted for it because they broke from this manly stereotype that, that their, their work cultures were expecting them to, to be. Um, so, look, look, everywhere I go, men and women start to say, oh, I've never, I've never seen this before. And what's really sad is that this happens all the time. They thought that they were the only ones like that. You know, mm-hmm. even that's an interview from my book said to me, well, look, I mean, I'm really hands on. I'm all in. I care for my kids. But most other dads don't. And when that happened, I would say to the guy, I would say, OK, think of all the dads, you know, can you name one who is not all in? And they couldn't think of any. But we all believe these stereotypes. So, so you know, I work with, with companies. I work with Dove Men Plus Care. I work with brands. I, I work to help get really positive images of men and manliness out there and, and to, to combat the toxic masculinity, which sadly and horrifyingly Donald Trump symbolizes. Right, because I think actually um, of the many complexities that were at play were what are the kind of icons that um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, suggest for us? You know, voting for Donald Trump, were you voting for the powerful, rich, white man with the beautiful wife? And is it because you want to be that powerful, rich, white man, or he makes you feel safe, or he seems like a father figure? And obviously, we want to redefine what a father figure looks like. And I remember, in turn, I was especially watching, I was 
watching the convention speech, and then I was watching the final rally here in Philadelphia on TV. And I remember seeing Hillary had a gravitas and a wisdom that also seemed maternal, matriarchal, in the best sense to me, that that was somebody that I could look at and respect and admire and feel like I could trust her to do what was best for us, to care about our well-being. And I wonder if in the same way that for me, um, I responded negatively to the bluster of Trump, and I responded positively to these to the kind of idea of matriarchal power. If for other people, these binary these are also binary role models of a different era. Yeah, and they're yeah. not giving us complex views of what men and women can be, particularly in leadership roles. Yeah, do you know what? This is going to sound so like out of left field, but I, I was reading this article the other day in which Miley Cyrus apparently announced that she is, what's this word, um, she is gender unassigned. I guess she, she explained that she's never felt like a boy or a girl. Right? Okay. So here she is, this icon, and in an era in which... And a hypersexualized icon. Right. No, right, exactly. And when I saw that, actually, it, it like gave me insight into maybe one reason that she does put her body out there so much. You know, it, it could be her way of processing that or, or the way she feels about her body. But, but okay, so here she is, you know, this big this big pop icon. And pop icons matter, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Think back to the Beatles. Think, think back to the 50s. Well, the first thing you think of is maybe Elvis, you know, Marilyn Monroe. So, so hearing that we are in an era in which a person can say that, which is a true acceptance of individuality and, mm-hmm. you know, people being who they are, and then seeing that we nevertheless elected um, a man who, you know, judged Hillary Clinton's body. I mean, it, it, the, the man who is the stereotype of the disgusting boss that you don't want your daughter working for or yeah. your wife working for. Um, it, it shows that that despite what's happening at the what happened in this election culture does move forward but and this is a, a really Im- important thing to point out people copy what wins and so mm-hmm. the, the challenge before us is not just donald trump it's that donald trump won therefore other people are going to copy his methods not the the calmer let's listen kind of methods of jeb bush that right. it's this new alt-right reality that if you want to win on that side, you you engage in sexism and racism and Islamophobia and all these other things, even if you don't even believe it. So we are up against not just him, but we're up against this new phenomenon, and that is why we have to make sure that we own our culture and that we don't let anyone push back our culture. Ultimately, that's what has to keep moving forward, not backward on the timeline. So we've got to continue to learn to know our facts, to message clearly, and to conceive of real solutions and bring them to the table, because there's clearly a lot of work to be done. Yeah, and I have a piece in time right now about how you know we need paid family leave. And, and uh, honestly, we might still get it in the next few years because more states are doing it. And paid family leave changes culture. Paid family leave allows men mm-hmm. and women to be caregivers. And then kids grow up seeing men as caregivers as well. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing that you can do to undo that. When a kid grows up seeing that a dad can be as much of a caregiver as a mom, the kid grows up expecting equality. Millennials Absolutely. still expect equality. And so that's how we, that's how we keep pushing forward through and that's, focusing on solutions. And that's how we change culture. Yeah. Josh, yeah. I never have enough time with you. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on Women at Work. Thank you so much. And, you know, thanks for, for being the, the ultimate hub to have these conversations. Just really, <laughs> I want everyone in America to discover this show. All right, folks, everybody <laughs> listening, go tweet about it. I will tweet about it. I'm at Josh Labs. Go Facebook about it within your echo chamber at the very least. Make sure everyone there is listening, and then let's, let's spread the wealth beyond that. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much. Um, I also would like to thank Jessica Bennett, who joined us in the first half hour, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, and production assistant, Allie Freed. You can check out our schedule of replays on the SiriusXM website. Thank you so much for listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'll look forward to talking with you soon. Take care, everyone.